We've got Andy Mead from Mead New Homes this week and on the Investors Corner we're going to get stuck into what is going on with the new homes world, what may happen in 2024 with the new homes world as well. We, in a couple of episodes ago, we actually had Lee Curtis from Kirtland on and he was talking very much around some of the challenges that developers are having at the moment. And as we're talking to investors out there, I think it will interest people because if you're buying a standard buy-to-let or you're looking to buy a couple of buy-to-lets, effectively a developer could be your competition in a couple of different ways. They could be from a rental point of view as a landlord. They could be from a purchase point of view as an investor as well. So this would be an interesting episode for anyone that wants to buy properties to rent at some point or as some people seem to be doing at the moment, Mike, could also be a, a smaller contractor, developer, tradie that's looking to actually purchase uh, maybe a one-for-one one or maybe a, an old house and turn it into a small block of flats as well. So going to really get uh, stuck into new homes. First of all, how are you, Andy Mead? I'm good, thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Second episode for you. Uh, yeah, sure. But many, many moons ago, when did we speak? We probably, you must have been in one of the first episodes uh, Two years ago, ago, I reckon it's it was. It's scary how quickly time goes. It and, does, and how 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 one week you're in you're in 2021, and the next week you're in 2024. It's just like bizarre how quickly it goes. One of the best takeaways from the last episode we did was when we were talking about new home sites being developed, and the first opportunity for an investor to go and purchase the show home mm. off the developer and lease it back to them while the development is being built out and effectively buy it at its lowest price because the phase is about to mature into what it's going to be. Yeah. And I remember that vividly as one of the, the key takeaways. So would you still do that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sale and lease back is always, it's always a, a, it's a guaranteed two, three year rental with a tenant in there. Yeah. The tenant being the builder. And they've got to keep it Pretty tidy. They're going to look, yeah, yeah, they're going to look after it. It's going to be, and then when in seventy-five percent of the cases, they will redecorate it when they give it back. Mm. Um, so it's 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 definitely if you can get on at the outset of a development, especially if it's a two, three, four-year development, you've got that length of time for a guaranteed income, and usually they they will pay a minimum of six, six and a half percent. Yeah, I like a, that as a yield. I like that a lot. There was someone or I was either talking to or watching, you might tell me this might be a TV show, but they were talking about, it might have been a podcast, another podcast. They had a bit of cash. They'd gone abroad. They wanted to buy the show flat. Uh, I think it was in Spain, somewhere like that. They wanted to buy the show flat. And what they realized with the show flat is it wasn't for sale, but they wanted it as it was. They just wanted it plug and play, all the furnishings, yeah. you know, because they always look amazing, don't they, the yeah. show homes. And what they quickly decided is they could buy 10 of these properties off plan turn them into show flat level kind of properties and they would get like crazy more money than what they would have done if they'd have um, just put them through resi. So it does make me wonder sometimes with, you know, when you look at the new homes developments, whether that is the, the way to actually do small boutique kind of new homes is stop selling them as vacant properties, start selling them as furnished properties. You know, if you had 10, 10 lovely family homes as developments all over the place where, you know, you might have 10 million pound houses or you're selling a site at the moment that's got um, seven units. I think some of them are two bed terraces, three bed terraces and some three bed or four bed detachments. Yeah. I just wonder if those seven units, if they'd furnished all of them with a bit of theme, what the GDV would be. Do you think they would have got drastically more? 
not so much I don't think so much on houses because predominantly people buying houses are ones that have already got their own properties. Okay. But I think on apartments it's definitely worthwhile on apartments doing them as um not so much pre owned, but they do the furniture packs and you have a level of furniture pack which you can choose, which we did a lot when I was working for a developer in London. There was um gold, silver and bronze level of yeah. furniture pack, which ranged from I think back then it was between seven and a half, fifteen and twenty grand to furnish the whole flat. You know, and that was everything, cutlery, dishwash, dish towels, towels, furniture. Just move in. Just, just move straight in. So on the yeah. day of completion, we had an agreement with the company that supplied all the furniture that two days before completion, as long as they'd exchange contracts, two days before completion they could go in and literally do everything. So hand the keys over, you're moving in and then you're literally plonk your suitcase down, you've closed down and you're in. Good to go. It moves me to, I guess, rental, you know, just normal rentals as well. Why do you think landlords or more letting agents normally from an advice point of view typically advise just go vacant, just go unfurnished? But especially in some of the cities and things like that, I just wonder whether there is an opportunity to furnish some of these properties and actually have a maximum level of of rental because some of the prices achieved at the moment are unbelievable but in certain apartments in particular it does feel that you could really maximize i mean in america look you know from a real estate point of view if we say they lead the way in terms of service levels and maximizing properties you employ a real estate agent at x figure they invest like 100 grand on your property to to get you that extra half million pounds And the same applies when you look at, you know, some of the, some of the sort of more entrepreneurial hotspots, your Dubai's and things like that. You know, a lot of these properties are furnished to a very high spec. But in the UK, we're kind of vacant boxes in new homes, vacant boxes in yeah, I think, in rentals. Yeah, as well. I think with developers that they've, and I think this is not just developers, but it's it's as a nation we we've. If you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. There's, you know, and. In all fairness, look, the housing market in the last 10, 15 years has been very, very prevalent, apart from the last two years, or last year. So what's why would they spend the money to do that when there's no actual history or proof that it works? But looking at other eight, other countries' models, they yeah. do work. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a great idea. But I think if you're looking at houses, you... I think if you're doing it as a furnished package, you're then maybe eliminating people that are looking to rent a place that have already got their own furniture. I don't know, Mike, you tell me. You, you're more Yeah, the, the, the rental thing, I think there's, there's a few barriers to doing it. Firstly, there used to be a really good tax break for having a furnished property where you could write off part of the value of the, of the furniture every year, which made it slightly worthwhile. Mm. You used to be able to hold a bigger deposit against it. Um, both of which have been taken away from landlords. So you might spend £15,000 furnishing a flat, you know, standard two-bedroom flat, and you can only hold a 1500 quid deposit, um, mm. which leaves you at a bit of a risk. If, you, if you're getting maybe £100, £200 a month over market value, it's going to take you 10 years to pay for that furniture. That furniture is not going to last 10 years. In a rental property, it could only last six months. Mm. Um, I've had a sofa smashed down the middle in in a, in a rented property um, of mine. Don't know how they did it. 
didn't ask a question, to be completely honest. But We're splitting up. <laughs> <laughs> splitting um, sofa. Fortunately, it wasn't a really, really expensive piece of furniture. But that's why a lot of landlords don't do it, is because of the risk. Certainly, they look better. Certainly, yes, you can achieve a premium because people buy a lifestyle. Um, I think where the American system has it is people tend to move on to their on you know the higher end the tv sort of level mm. world of american real estate people tend to move first and then leave their house empty for a real estate agent to go and max out the value Stage it probably, so yeah. you're, you're bridging finance and that kind of thing or however they finance the next move whether it's cash or bridging is much more normal than it is in the uk whereas in the uk you're sat there with your two kids in the house trying to sell it so you can't shift everything out to move new stuff in but the investment if you did that in the uk a lot of the time it would be worth it right a lot of the time we walk into houses and go guys you just spent two grand you'd probably make 25 Mm. on this house we saw that block didn't we in reading recently central reading you know right next to the train station you know and i just think of that particular yes. block where it's got all of the communal areas you know the family areas the home workspace areas it's got its own cinema gym i think it had as well um, yeah underground yep. car park that for me is the prime sort of type of property where i could think if that landlord or developer in this case was selling those apartments if they were all sold yeah with the furniture packs you know and you put 10 grand's worth of packs in you wouldn't probably pay 10 grand across that amount of units no. you'd probably pay way less than that but let's just say 10 grand you're easily going to get 30 40 grand more yeah. on each plot for the way that they look for the type of tenant and buyer because those buyers are middle east type buyers and you know they've come over from different countries effectively haven't they so it's normal to them yeah because the the buyer is a foreign buyer not not the way that we've yeah, always yeah, known definitely. i think for, for the overseas market it's, it's a perfect it's a perfect model so maybe it's more a city yeah yeah a city that takes the stance on it if, yeah. if you've got the opportunity to buy a lifestyle and yeah. i see that in de depending on the developer people will spend more to buy a barclay home mm. than an other developer for example because you're buying into a lifestyle yeah. yeah so you could push that further to to buying into the barclay furnished lifestyle just to pick one developer yeah out of a out of the air i think there's definitely mileage in it because i've sold new buildings new new apartment buildings and i've seen people chase the show flat around the development oh 100 yeah it's always the first one to get yeah. sold and then they move it and that's the next one to get and, and the developer gets frustrated by it mm. which almost is like you say is the wrong mentality yeah maybe do it to all of them and, and put pitch your price point a little bit better but how would a serve how would a surveyor react to that if you're outperforming the market to a yeah, to a white box next door, yeah, definitely. Because and the surveyor will, will invariably they won't look at what's been sold on that development. They will look at other developments. So I think when we were selling the apartments in um, Slough, and then said Spain, then selling the apartments in Slough, similar, yeah, <laughs> similar area, Kings of an S. Um, the surveyors they would only take one comparison from the from that development. Mm -hmm. The rest would have to be within. External close, comparables. Close, close, close proximity. So it's, which frustrates me because within any development, you can build your own market. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. got its own identity, yeah. 100%. And that's what you're doing. And that's what we do as, you know, Mead New Homes, Avocado Property. We, we will always build a development 
a lifestyle within that development. Yeah. So you, you're buying within that, you know, you, and the reason you're buying that is because it's better than the one down the road. Yeah. And you're going to pay a little bit extra for that. But if you're comparing, if the surveyor's comparing the one down the road, you're not comparing apples with apples, you're comparing mm-hmm. apples with eggs. Yeah. So it's it's building that lifestyle, and that's that's what you need to do with any development, especially if it's a 20, 30, 40-plus scheme. You need to build that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And one block that could be quite literally there, the other side of that wall, could be just totally different mm. to that block. And you're trying to force a comparable from it when you've got 60 on this block, and it makes no sense. Yeah. I think with surveyors, they're probably... To answer a question, I, th- I think surveyors would do it the same way they do everything, which just depends how they wake up in the morning, pretty much, to be honest with Flick you. What, what, what mood they're in that morning. <laughs> yeah, if they've def- had a yeah. good weekend or a bad weekend, you know, yeah. it's, it's, that's a risky business. But anyway, um, in ter- going back to the rental contract, you mentioned mm. about sofa. You mentioned about, obviously, if you're letting a property furnished, why can a contract not be written to say that if a tenant was to um, damage a dining room chair or any piece of furniture that's in there the tenant actively breaks it yep you know they put a fist through a door they scratch the dining room uh, table quite obviously intentionally uh, or they yeah like i say they they're playing wwe with their friend and they smash a chair to pieces is it still called WWE? WWF? I've got no idea. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not on my Sky Plan. Funnily enough, it's not watching what? men's wrestling in pants isn't, isn't my sort of idea of entertainment. I've had a funny morning. Can't wait, um, can't wait for the reel on that one. Yeah, But going back to it, on contracts, why can't it be written in that if the tenant actively damages the contract is not wear and tear, that they are responsible to replace the chair? Well, effectively, you can't ask for new for old. And it's your word against them to a certain extent. It's so, proven it wasn't done deliberately as well. Exactly. I sat on it. It collapsed. Yeah. Is so. Yeah. I mean, it depends how heavy you are to, to how believable that is. Um, effectively, the, the general scheme of things is that furnishings and consumable items have a lifespan. So if it's said to have a seven to ten life, seven to ten year lifespan and it's five years old realistically as a landlord you can only really claim half of the value of that item if it needs replacing because if you're going to sell it it would only have half of the value it's the same goes for carpets because they're thought of to last around about 10 years if it's damaged in a wall now the wall wouldn't expect to need rebuilding in 10 years time but then the decoration you're expecting to decorate every two to three years so there's, there's various sort of percentages and equations that if you took it to a dispute, that it would be worked down. But a broadly swathing, it is stacked in the tenant's favour a little bit too much to stop landlords from just claiming stuff. And before tenants' deposits were protected, I saw the absolute opposite. I worked in a Reading market where landlords would just go, tenants wrecked it, I'm keeping the deposit. Yeah, so it's, it's and you just drew a line under it. That was the tenant it. would go, yeah. There was no recourse. Yeah. Yeah. So like, well, show us the proof. Well, I've already decorated it over the weekend. I'll have you. Okay, <laughs> right. And there was there's very little you could do about yeah. it. So it swung from one way to almost a little bit way past the other. But I understand why the protection's in place because it is the tenant's money. No one else's until it's not. Yeah, it's a bit like being innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. 
yeah, it's difficult. But I think there's, I think as times evolve, there's a place where this will happen. That's why I asked the question, new homes. How is the new homes market through the eyes of a developer at the moment, Andy? Tough. Very tough. What, what's Surely, their pain points? Their pain point is planning. Their pain point is being able to predict what they're going to build and what they've got in their approved planning pipeline for the next two, three years. That's a lot of P's. I was going to say, can you do yeah. that 10 times? Though, no, I can't, no. Once was a, once was a struggle. <laughs> um, so there's, there's, there's difficulty across the whole of the planning aspect of developers, and that's what's holding everything up. And it's just... Is that time or price or both? Time price is price has never really been an issue in terms of getting the planning. It's it's more of, as, I sorry, I mean in terms of getting the right price for the right planning. As in, are, you, are people overpaying on land still? Is that no, a, no, no, that's okay. Isn't no, it? Uh, no, purely for the fact with if, if we'll talk about the talk about we'll talk about land now. So if you've got um, if you're driving down the high street and there's a board saying land for sale, full planning approved. And it's been there for a week. It's overpriced. I'm seeing land and development plots on right move at the yeah, moment, which, which doesn't happen. No, no it just yeah. doesn't. If you if you go back eighteen months, two years, if a plot of land became available, it would never hit the open market. Yeah, it was gone because yeah. the land agents would know, but from Bob's developers or somebody else that was looking for that for that development. So therefore, they would get on to say, so it would never ever need to go to the market. The problem we've got now is material costs have risen 25-30% in the last two years. Labour costs have gone up. Labour availability has gone down, mm. so there's less people. House prices in the last year have gone down, what were we saying, 7.5%? Give or take. Somewhere around there. So something's got to give. And unfortunately, what's got to give is the land value because that's where it all starts from. Um, and builders don't build for free. They want to make a profit. Not forgetting, obviously, on top of that, interest rates have, yeah. have gone through yeah, sorry, through interest. the metaphorical yeah. roof that yeah. if you're sat on a on a development site, chances are you borrowed to buy it yeah. rather than so, to buy it with cash. Yeah, so developers are now a lot more, rather than taking a punt on a site three, four years ago because the market was rising, the interest rates were fairly low. That's not happening now. They They want belt and braces to be sure that what they're buying that they're going to build out and it's going to be ready to be sold in average build time is nine months to a year from getting the planning that what they're buying it now they're not going to be making a loss on now yeah there's always a crystal ball and there's an element there so there's, there's got to be a a um a bit of bravery in buying a building site building mm -hmm. a plot of land but they they do their own due diligence. So regardless of what I say to the landowner as my opinion of a value, the developer that we speak to will always go out and do his own due diligence independently. Mm -hmm. And what we're finding now with a lot of developers is that they now won't speak to certain agents because they know that the land they're being given to them is just so overpriced that the agents have over-egged the value to get the instruction it's to, they're just not they're just not selling. So, if you see a site that's got planning permission that's on the market, it's on right move, that's got a board outside it, the chances are the landowner either wants too much money or has been advised that they're too much money. So, is the bottleneck in land stock developers that have bought land stock that are sitting on them because planning hasn't gone through, or 
units where they're actually building them out and they can't sell them. It's normally there's normally a bottleneck somewhere in one of those three layers. Yeah, the, the bottleneck is actual planning. Is actually the, the planning. It's so, the actual planning. so if you go, so they own the land. They're just struggling to punch it through at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. so the ones where the ones where they own the land and they haven't got the planning on, they're the ones that they're struggling. Right. The ones that are available that have got planning on them that are on the market that the guy who owns it either he's not a builder or he doesn't want to build it because he doesn't see the benefit of building it, but trying to sell it for a premium is not happening. Yeah. So, but the main holdup is with the planning, the planning portal, the planning, planning issues, planning situation at the moment is just across every region is just ridiculous. Every developer, I'll speak to developers in Manchester, I spoke to a guy who's building, who's looking to build somewhere in Leeds, um, Liverpool, London. He said the planning is just, the whole system is just shot to pieces. The whole country. Is yeah. Struggling. So it's all across the board and it's. You know, when you when you're looking at planning, planning should be for well-being, not just growth. Mm. So, well-being we mean well-being for the area. So, if you're in a town, so let's say Bracknell, for example, what's to stop us expend extending that by a meter, a mile radius? So, you've all got the, you've got the infrastructure already, you've got the road structure, and if you just put that planning outside by by a mile radius you could get so much more development within that area. And if you drive outside of Bracknell, going towards Maidenhead, going towards London, the amount of air, open area and open space. So we're not overdeveloped as, a, as an area here. And I drove up to Stoke, and it was just amazing how, when I drive up to Leeds, quite a lot of being from Leeds, but driving up to Stoke, it's just incredible how much open space there is as a nation we have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got all these... NIMBYs saying you can't build it because we're overdeveloped. But as a nation, we're not. I think there's only something like less than 20% of our country is developed. I was showing one of the Avocado partners how to use uh, chat GTP. And we were talking about um, a property property market crash and why a property market crash can potentially happen. We asked chat, so we asked AI, what were the top five reasons why that may happen? And I think number four was um, too many properties for sale. And we kind of all just laughed at it because there is such a shortage of property in mm. the UK. And we know that because we can go back to, you know, even 20 odd years ago where they basically said, we're going to build at this rate annually as a government. And they've never hit that benchmark for 20 years. And then I think the reports that came out, it was pre-COVID, it must have been around 2017, 2018, highlighted that the deficit since 2002, when they basically put that kind of marker in play, was that the country at that moment in time, this is five years ago, was short the equivalent of a Birmingham city mm. in the country. So there was a whole Birmingham city shortage of properties yeah. to hit the quota that obviously hasn't been hit and your evidence is in is in what you see there i i drove down from harrogate all in one hit on a friday night and probably 90 percent of my journey down the motorway was just fields either side of me yeah well it's, it's and it's you know it's planning and i get the planning laws and i get the planning regulations they need to be for um for the community it needs to be a benefit to the community not to the developer not to the council it needs to be a benefit to the community and invariably, if you're going to extend a community, then you need to put an additional school in there. You need to put more shops in there. You need to put 
maybe a, a different road structure in there. But all of that will benefit the community because then there'll be more money coming into the community from the new houses. Mm-hmm. So it just there's just there's it makes sense for the planning problems to be eradicated. And you know, Keir Starmer came out last week with what he wants to do, and he was he's very much a, yes, I'm a Yimby. Yes, in my backyard, I'm, and he wants to he wants to hit the quota of three hundred thousand pounds, three hundred thousand pounds, three hundred thousand houses per year. Mm. Now, he's got ways. That he said he wants to do it. Now, when you look at what he says, you don't actually think he's talking nonsense, <laughs> which normally he does. You know, you look at what he does, and it's it's not a, in my opinion, it's not a difficult fix. Mm. But the problem you have, and the problem you're going to have, and as much as I hate to say this, up until the next election, there are going to be a lot of councils that will be refusing pan- refusing planning for the wrong reasons because they want to stay on the side of their constituents rather than the side of the benefit of the growth. So if there's a planning application in Bracknell, the chances are planning in Bracknell over the next six months is going to be very devoid because we've got the election coming up next year and they want to win the votes. And they think by winning votes, by refusing planning, is a way of winning votes. Yeah, I think it's a really tough one. I mean, there's a there's a great local example where where we all live. I think Bracknell has the capacity for a lot of extra homes because of the way the town is laid out. I think Wokingham next door does not have the capacity mm. because of the way the town's laid out. That's just my personal opinion on it, but both towns have seen a lot of new building going on over the last five years because there's probably about 20 years where very little was done. So it's all suddenly come through, like you said, that sort of bottlenecking of it. My problem comes with the whole system is that the infrastructure seems to come after the houses, not before. And that's that's always been my problem with it is, is you can build a thousand houses, but equally forget to build the community centre and the local shops and the and, and the relief road until afterwards. And I'm sure it's all money related. Yeah, so but, pro- there's no profit in a, re- a relief road, is there? No, it's it's frustrating for the... I, I, th- I think that's what frustrates the residents. Yeah. That the road and the infrastructure should come first, not last. Yeah, well, I've, I've been talking to some guys down in Southampton. They've got a massive development going in Southampton. And I went down to see them three three months ago. And they've already got the infrastructure in. Hmm. They've got the road in. So they've got this road. It's like a road to nowhere. But you know, in time, it's, that's going to be. Yeah. So they've done it a little bit in reverse. Is they, they've done all of their, all of the um, commercial work at the forefront of the development. It's less surprise for people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, yeah. you'd yeah. like to think yeah. at that point as well. But what the what the what the what the residents of the local area can see is when that relief road opens. There's going to be a massive benefit to the yeah, community, exactly. Yeah, because it's there. It's not going to be a strain on the community for no. eight to ten years. Yeah. As building yeah. a thousand houses normally takes eight to ten years, and it's a yeah. strain to the community until those things are finished. Where we are in Wokenham, they've only just opened the northern relief road. The southern, I think, about five five thousand houses have been built. It goes down to a roundabout and stops. Yeah. So all of that traffic gets fed through a town centre that was built in the 16th century for track, for carts, yeah. not, <laughs> not not for Chelsea tractors. No. So it's, you know, I, I can kind of see why people get frustrated because the whole, 
And I think that it should be a council-based thing. It should be a right, okay, well, we'll, you know, bit of tit for tat, we'll give you your planning, but you can have your planning when the infrastructure's in to see people invest first, like you've seen in Southampton. Mm. You can see the investments going in, so it's okay to then build the rest of the, the profitable bits. Yeah, and I think it's there's 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 got to be a balance between the the nasty planners and the nasty developers. Yeah, um, and the nasty developers, and you know, I've seen it on my development where I live in in, in Wokenham. You know, it's still as was that seven years I've been there now, and that still hasn't been handed over to the local authority because there's still works on going that the builders need to do. Now it's fun for conveyances as well, though. Massive, yeah, <laughs> but they but they finished building two years ago, mm. so. Yeah, but the the council still haven't adopted that estate, so it's just and that's you know is that down to the the big nasty developer not fulfilling his section one hundred and six, or is that down to the local authority saying oh, no, we don't need to do that just yet, we'll we'll leave it for another year. It's funny in this country how you know we attach those sort of titles to the nasty planner or the nasty developer and stuff. Effectively, as soon as someone starts doing quite well, yeah, oh, themselves. massively, yeah, yeah, yeah. In this country, we just sort of want to tear them apart. Whereas you look at the US or somewhere like that, and they're championing success. Oh, it, should, it should be, you know, you, just yeah. I mean, it you, makes you, it quite difficult, doesn't it? Because you're constantly at a battle with the culture of the British community to kind of go, well, we're trying to, we're trying to support. You have an issue with prices. As estate agents, you know, if we we look at it and they say, well, it's your fault, we don't. We don't actually care what the prices are. We're just trying to make a living, so we need turnover to do that. We don't. Yeah. Whether a house is worth four hundred thousand or three hundred thousand actually doesn't make a difference to no. us. If we can sell two at three hundred, we would much rather do that than one at four hundred. So, all we're trying to do is facilitate the, the demand in the same way the developers are trying to do the same because the councils need to do it because everyone is frustrated by the drastic increase of prices over the last 40 years in the country. It's kind of that full circle that... Yeah, but I think the, the, the increase of properties, the increase of values is because there's a lack of properties. Well, that's so, exactly that, that, my point. Yeah. That's so, we go, so we're going around the... It's like, a, yeah. it's like a vicious circle that we're getting lambasted for values being so high, yet we're not going to address the problem by building more houses to bring the... The demand down. It's the same with with um, landlords. It's the same with you know kind of residential landlords. You know that everyone for the last ten years has kind of bashed landlords. You know, especially tenants and first time buyers. You know, they take our properties. They take our properties. They're forcing the prices out, and then they've made it really difficult for landlords to buy properties. They've started to exit, and you know they're buying less, which is what the plan was. And the rental prices are now double what they were ten years ago, typically speaking. So now tenants can't become first-time buyers because they're spending too much money on rent. So it's like yeah. well, this counter just yeah. sometimes you kind of need to like not artificially mess with a process, and it feels like that's it's where we're the at. The same with, with council well. housing. It's like every, well, councils should have should supply council housing. Unfortunately, councils can't afford to maintain council houses, so they get given a load of houses, and then in 40, 50 years, they're all falling down because mm. they haven't had the budget to maintain them like a private landlord or a private owner would. That's just a fact of life because the council isn't funded enough. Mm-hmm. But do you want your taxes to go up Yeah, yeah. It, to it, fund that? Yeah. No, of course you don't. So no, no one ever wins. No. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's that continuous circle of, 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 of issues. Yeah. But I think you are right. We do, we do need to champion success. And that's the biggest bugbear I've got for this country is that as a nation, we, we build people up to knock them down. Mm. Um, 
in any industry, whether it's, you know, whether it's a football, whether it's a, a company doing well, whether it's um, anything, you know, it's, we build them up to knock them down. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a shame because I think, again, when you look at the bigger picture, if there is the big person in the ivory tower that's driving a Rolls Royce and flying first class everywhere, typically speaking, there's a job at the bottom of that hierarchy of staff that's for your daughter or son when they leave university or college that's going to get them a foot on the career path to whatever their success journey looks like. So sometimes we have to review the bigger picture. Um, slightly off topic here, and we'll talk opinions here rather than uh, facts, but we were talking about development. Has anyone driven into Farnborough recently and seen the development in the middle of the roundabout? The first roundabout you arrive yes. in Farnborough has an actual development is it actually Savoy House that has been built there on looks, a roundabout? It looks a bit paused, but yeah, on a roundabout. Yeah, I've ra- not seen it. Whereabouts? As near the station, right by Farnborough Station. Yeah. So you've got Farnborough Station on the right. The first over, roundabout. O- over the bridge, that funny roundabout that's really, really difficult two to navigate. Blocks either, uh, oh, two blocks either. Two blocks. It used, to be, used to be the pub, the Flocken. I think it used to be a pub, yes. It blows my mind that there's still trouble with planning on some of these developments <laughs> when there is a five-story, 40-unit block of flats that's just been created in the middle of a roundabout. And it's a busy roundabout as well. Yeah. If you don't know where you're going, it's um, yeah. it's a bit hairy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it blows my mind. But uh, anyway, why does that happen? <laughs> brown paper bags? Well, I wouldn't even like to comment on brown paper bags. I, pr- I presume the pub and some other buildings were there before the roundabout, and therefore you you get to replace what was already there. If, yeah, if there is yeah. any, de- go and take a photo of it with your drone, and then if there <laughs> is ever one, yeah, yeah, fly it from here. <laughs> if there's ever any declined planning permission on for one of your clients, just send a photo of that roundabout with a block of flats on it, and say how is this approved and that. Oh is no, not. but but then but then you know there is invariably and i'll if i spoke to 10 developers 10 developers would agree to me that there is no logic to a refused planning application yeah yeah very true um very true and i think last time we spoke about this you know we mentioned about the jeremy clarkson thing Mm. you know he was trying to put a path on his farm yeah and it got refused he was trying to do something else on his farm and it got refused yeah and it was just how the council how the councillors and the planners feel that day is pretty much like a surveyor you know go back to the beginning of the conversation it's how they feel when they wake up in the morning it's just there is no there's no rhyme or reason to an uh, an appeal or a refusal or an acceptance of a planning application it does feel like the opinion led decision making process somehow needs to be with, with removed from the planning process and make it more this is the rule book this is the playbook it's either in or it's out. And then everyone knows where they stand. And I know that's easier said than done, but it does feel like it's too based on the Jeremy Clarkson, you know, farm show is a very prime example of something that because he's Jeremy Clarkson, everything's being declined. But all he's trying to do from a well-being point of view yeah. for the community and for the farm oh, is yeah, improve yeah. it. And it's that, it's um, outrageous. Yeah. It is outrageous. Yeah, I mean, we go back to we go back to the, you know when we talked about well-being, not just growth. Yeah, okay, fine. He was looking to grow his business, but the well-being for five other farmers that he was bringing in, into that to buy their produce, yeah. was massive. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's there. There needs to be a more measured approach to it, rather than just saying that's not going in there because I don't want it to go in there. Yeah. It's a it's a well being approach, and it's and it's not 
is not, as I say, it's not just growth. It's you need to be looking at the well-being of the whole community and how that's going to impact and benefit the community. So let's throw a crystal ball on the table. What happens next year? Obviously, we're talking elections, we're talking planning issues, we're talking developers, housing market, rental prices. What do you see from the eyes of someone that supports developers with the marketing of their their properties and sources and buyers? What do you see happening in the market in 2024 for developers? I think the the government have got to do something post-Christmas in terms of schemes to try and get people back onto the ladder. Um, I think there's talk at the weekend about uh, extending the mortgage guarantee scheme. Um, but I don't think that'll be enough. Um, there needs to be, especially with the interest rates as they, as they are now, there needs to be, you know, a lot of people knocked the help to buy scheme, but it helped over 370,000 people get on the housing market. Yes, it inflated prices, but then we go back to the situation was that the, the, the stock wasn't there for all the buyers that wanted to buy. So it did push prices up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the help to buy scheme, I think, would be a, a massive benefit to the housing market. Um, planning, more than anything else, has got to be sorted out. Um, and that's whether with a blue government in or a red government in. Pink government? I was going to say a yellow government, but I can't see them getting in. But then you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think whoever whoever goes in and whatever their goes in or stays in and whatever their their manifesto is is they need to stick to it for the planning because it's not just the planning it's the wider economy that the housing market does benefit mm-hmm. so they need to sort the planning out and that's um you know we, we we've talked about this for the last 18 months i think that, that it's a broken system um unfortunately i haven't got the the voice to change that system but i can highlight it Um, And that's what we need to do is that the system is broken. The system needs to change. And I think where we talk about those densities around towns, we talk about, you know, Bracknell's got the capacity. Wokenham probably doesn't because of its traffic issues in in the town centre and things like that. But when you when you talk about going five miles outside of these towns and putting some 12, 15 family home sites together, it just that, that has to be something they focus on. Yeah. It just it needs to happen in the country desperately. If we don't need forty two flats in the middle of a roundabout in the town centre, <laughs> no, we we need yeah. fifteen family homes two miles out of yeah. the town yeah. centre. That's a ten minute drive into the town centre, because that's 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 the ripple effect that we need to see. But at the moment, because the developers can only make the land deals work on the profit margins inside these core functions, quarter of a mile radius of of train stations, etc. That's a real issue for the market if, if something doesn't drastically change with the planning. And it all goes back to making that appealing site 15 units, two miles outside of Warfield or Bracknell or Wokenham or Farnborough, wherever it may be, in a really nice location with a nice country pub that's walking distance for people that don't want to be walking distance to a Waitrose or a co-op or a Tesco's or whatever. And they don't want to drive home in the middle of the town centre traffic. They want to be raising a family in, yeah. in in what we would call more country living that's actually yeah which isn't then going to affect the people that say not in my backyard mm. because it's fur- it's further out but then it's going to benefit those people mm. that are saying not in my backyard because when their kids want to move where they're going to buy exactly yeah and it ripples out and it, and it kind of gets the momentum going with the market as well so um 
maybe if someone's listening from the planning or from the government scenario from councils let's have a chat we can... five to eleven they won't be up yet well <laughs> <laughs> the podcast goes at 7 a.m um but we we can maybe uh, help with some conversations but it's very insightful podcast andy and thank you for coming on and talking about it openly and yeah let's see what happens over the course of the next six to nine months mm. with with a lot of things due to happen with the market we've seen the last nine months we know the struggles it's had we know what it's done we know that transactions are going to be down 300 maybe 350 thousand units this year in comparison to a, a kind of normal 1.2 million average so there is a place for first-time buyers investors second-time buyers to be buying new homes to improve that transaction quality so that these quotas can get hit. It is needed, whether you like it or not, it is needed for the generations that are to come. So massively, yeah. Yeah, yeah. massively. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank Danny. you for having me. Thank you.